Father, as we wrap up this evening, we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us about our Lord, the Good Shepherd. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. We're in uh, paragraph 103, John 10. I went to seminary for four years, and uh, one of the courses they have you take is called homiletics. It's how you preach. You heard of a homily, that's a short talk, and there's a methodology behind a lot of sermons. And one of the major schools of preaching is that you should only ever have as many as three points in your message. So I've already failed that tonight miserably. But uh, the other thing that uh, a professor one time stood up in front of his class and said is, men, the most important thing in your sermon is the title. Your title has to be so catchy that if someone were in a bus riding past your church and they saw out on the sign in front of the church your sermon title, it would make them want to get off the bus to hear that sermon. And so with that, the young men began to study diligently, and they began to prepare their first messages. And when it came time for this one guy to get up in particular, he he got up and he said, well, the sermon for today uh, is entitled, There's a Bomb on the Bus. (laughs) Well, there's no bomb on this bus, but but, uh, John chapter 10 is a really cool passage because it has three points, and each of those three points has three points. I'll give it to you quickly, and again, if you want the outline, connect with me uh, on the internet or by phone, and I'll be happy to give it to you. In uh, verses 1 through 6, we have Christ, the true shepherd, and we're going to see three things about him. In verses 7 through 10, we have Christ is the gate of the sheep, and then or the door for the sheep either will work. And then in verses 11 to 18, Christ is called the good shepherd, and that, by the way, is the number four I am in the gospel of John. Let's look at this discourse. It's the sixth of seven discourses in the Gospel of John, and it links in nicely with Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 16, which talks about uh, God is the shepherd of Israel. God is the shepherd of Israel. And again, the Pharisees in the setting call themselves the shepherds of Israel. Wrongly, we're going to see that even in this little teaching, Jesus talks badly about the Pharisees. But the first thing Jesus says is that the true shepherd, verses 1 through 6, enters by the gate. I tell you the solemn truth, the one who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. And the one that's coming in the other way are the Pharisees, by way of the Mishnah. That's their way. Second, he has the sheep listen to his voice. Verse 2, the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens the door for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And that's the third thing. He enters by the gate. Second, his sheep hear his voice. And third, he calls his own sheep by name. When he has brought, out, brought all his own sheep out, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger but run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus told them this parable, but they did not understand what he was saying. Remember our sign for parable. It hides the truth from the Pharisees and their followers while giving truth to the disciples and those who are the followers of Christ. And a lot of this is in a parable. The second part of the parable is in Christ Christ the door or the gate of the sheep. So Jesus again said to them, verse 7, I tell you the solemn truth, I am the door for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, number one, he will be saved. Number two, he will go come in and out. And number three, he will find 
pasture, and those are the three points. The gate, only access to, the, uh, to, to God is the one gate. There's fellowship there. You get to go in and out, and you'll find pasture. Compare that with the Pharisees. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I come so they might have life and might have it abundantly. I've given you a picture of uh, what the Jews would do, and still in other countries as well as Israel, you'll find these out on the mountainsides. You know, it's a, it's a very rocky country. There's not a lot of pasture land. But at least twice a year, the shepherds have to go out and keep watch over their flocks by night. Sound familiar? The sheep are the only animals that have to have uh, help with uh, bearing their lambs. And so you would gather your, your sheep together, and uh, you would put them in a small pen on the mountainside, and it would protect them. Notice that the shepherd is sleeping in this open doorway. He is the door of the sheep. The sheep don't come or go except through the door. And I think that's the purpose of this part of John chapter 10, the parable. Christ is the true shepherd, 1 to 6. 7 to 10, he's the gate or the door of the sheep. And then verses 11 to 18, he's the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And he says, uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who I think are the Pharisees, who is not a shepherd, does not own sheep. He sees the wolf coming and abandons the sheep and runs away. So the wolf attacks and the sheep attacks the sheep and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. He runs away. So the good shepherd, number one, lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, number two, will not abandon the sheep. And number three, and I love this, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then the third thing about the good shepherd is, is I have other sheep that do not come from this sheepfold. I must bring them too, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is a big deal, because I think here, Jesus is talking about us, those of us who are the goyim, the Gentiles. Jesus has other sheep that are not of the flock of Israel, and he's going to bring us all together and put us into one flock, Ephesians chapter 2 is an expansion on that. And again, the Pharisees would never even begin to think that's a possibility. Verse 17, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own free will. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back, this commandment I received from my Father. What is he saying is, look, no one's going to kill me. Even though the Pharisees are trying to murder me, I lay it down. He's in total control. He does it when he wants, he does it how he wants, and he does it in the way that he, that he, that he needs to die. He's going to be crucified in six months at the Passover as the Passover lamb for us. Again, he's talking in parables and they don't understand, so uh, the fourth point of the, uh, of the outline is that there's a, there's, a, there's a divided response. Another sharp division took place among the Jewish people because of these words, verse 19. Many of them were saying, He is possessed by a demon and has lost his mind. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of someone possessed by a demon. A demon cannot cause the blind to see, can it? He'd just done the Messianic miracle in the previous uh, paragraph in John chapter 9. Now, Jesus is going to send out 70 or 72 disciples slash apostles. This is different from paragraph 59, which we dealt with in Matthew chapter 10, but the mission is very similar. After this, Luke 10, verse 1, after the Feast of Tabernacles, 
the Lord appointed 72 others. And I, and I would rather go with the number 70. Again, you get those two groups of manuscripts. The number 70 in the Jewish world is more prevalent. It's the number of nations in Jewish theology total. 70 is the number of men that were in the Jewish Sanhedrin. And 70 is the number of elders who ruled under Moses. So it just makes better sense to me. I'm not upset if you take the 72. But he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So this is pretty cool. We got, you know, the old map of the life of Christ. And there's 35 cities that Jesus is going to get prepared for ministry. And we don't know squadoosh about it. So again, much of what Jesus does, I would say most of what Jesus does, we don't know. But he says to them, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, number one, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Number two, I'm sending you out like lambs surrounded by wolves. So you're going to be defenseless, expect rejection and opposition. Do not, three, carry a money bag or traveler's bag or sandals and greet no one on the road whenever you enter house. First say, may peace be on this house, and if a peace-loving person is there, your peace will remain on him, but if not, it will return to you. Fourth, stay in that same house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the worker deserves his pay. Do not move around from house to house. You get a better offer, you, know, you might get to go to St. Eric's house, big private room, jacuzzi, private masseuse, the whole deal. You shouldn't do that, just stay where you're invited. And then here's the ministry. Fifth, whenever you go to a town and the people welcome you, eat what is set before you, Heal the sick, say to them, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you're going to do ministry and you're going to do miracles. His words and his works are going to be multiplied by the disciples. Whenever you stay in a town and the people do not welcome you, go into its streets and say, number six, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. We've looked at this verse before in another setting. For if the miracles had done there been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, but it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be thrown to Hades. And the one, verse 16, who listens to me, I'm sorry, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me, the one who rejects the one who sent me. So you have the ministry, you have the commission in uh, verses 1 to 16, you have the sending of the of the 70 or the 72, and that's with their purpose, verses 1 to 16. And then beginning in verses 17 to 20, you have their return. Three results. Then the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So the first result is that places are prepared for Christ. The second result is the demons are submitting to the, to the authority of Christ in, by the disciples. And then third, there's victory over Satan. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Look, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and on the full force of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names stand written in heaven. And then there's a messianic prayer here in verses 21 to 24. He says, on the same occasion, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Now, who are the wise and intelligent? The Pharisees. They're the educated group who thinks they're smarter than everybody and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. All things have been given to me, all things have been given to me by my Father. No one knows who knows, I'm sorry, 
No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. Then he turned and says to his disciples privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings longed to see what you see but did not, and to hear what you hear but did not. You are blessed, disciples, because the prophets and the kings wanted your advantages, uh, and they're seeing stuff, you're seeing stuff they never saw. One of the errors that people have in studying the Bible is that miracles happen all the time, from the creation until Jesus came. And that's not true. There, there are three times in history when there are a lot of miracles. There's, there's the time of uh, Moses, and there's the time of Elijah and Elisha, and then there's the time of Jesus and the apostles. There'll be one more time, I think, preceding the second coming, God will do great miraculous works. But the average person who lived during history did not see a lot of miracles. And these disciples are seeing all sorts of stuff go on. So he says, hey, rejoice. You're getting to see stuff that the prophets didn't see. Paragraph 105. Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. Test Jesus. Ah, red flag. (laughs) Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? Don't you love Jesus? He's Jewish. Teacher, what must I do? That's a one-time action in the past. It's in the Greek aorist tense. The aorist tense means, what have I done in the past that will grant me eternal life? And so Jesus says, what is written in the law? He always answers a question with a question. Well, he gets the answer right. He says, the the expert said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a quote from Leviticus 16 and Deuteronomy 6. Love God completely, love others compassionately, and love yourself correctly. Jesus said, Jesus answered him, you have answered correctly, do this, put a circle around this, and draw it back up to verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because Jesus, verb tense is different. Jesus says, do this continually and you will live. But, the expert wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so he asked this question of Jesus, back and forth, and he's trying to put Jesus down here. And so now Jesus, again, is going to answer in parables. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went up, uh, beat him up and went off, leaving him half dead. Say half dead. Half dead. And... Here's the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles, but it's called the uh, descent of blood. When you were going from Jerusalem, you were at about 2,800 feet above sea level, and 15 miles away, which is closer than from here to Bartow, you're at 1,300 feet below sea level. So there can be snow on the mountains in Jerusalem, and there's only one or two inches of rain a year down in Jericho. And this road is just really scary. It is just straight downhill for 15 miles, hairpin after hairpin. Now, people were coming in and out of Jerusalem for the feasts. And the robbers used to hide on these hairpin curves, on the switchbacks, and they would beat you up because you didn't have safe deposit boxes and you couldn't wire funds. So when you're going to a feast, you carried your wealth with you. And so here's a man that gets beaten up. How badly is he beaten up? 
half dead. There's a big difference between half dead and all dead. Those of you who know the Princess Bride know the important difference. If he's all dead, there's only one thing left to do. Go through his pockets and look for loose change. But he's only half dead. <laughs> Not by chance a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. And because he was going down the road, he was leaving Jerusalem. He wasn't going to the feast. He wasn't in danger of missing the feast because he touches a dead body. The same, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was traveling, came to where the injured man was. And when he saw him, he did a bunch of stuff. Number one, he saw him. Two, he felt compassion for him. Three, he went up to him. Four, bandaged his wounds. Five, poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, six, he took out two silver coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Say, take care of him. Whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. You see, what Jesus did was he took the idea of a neighbor, and he made it into a verb. Who is my neighbor? Well, my neighbor is anybody that has a need that I'm aware of that God sends across my path. And so, verse 36, which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the priests and the, and the Levites were religious people. But the expert in the law wouldn't even say the word Samaritan. And so he says, the one who showed mercy to him. So Jesus said, go <laughs> and do the same. And again, they've called Jesus the Samaritan. And in the end, he is the one that they ought to be worshiping and emulating, but he is not. And then the last paragraph of the day is this little tiny story tucked in here at the end of Luke 10 between the parable of the Good Samaritan and the next event is the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. And this is an example of fellowship. Luke 10, verse 38, paragraph 106. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. And she had a sister named Mary who, and the word there should say, moreover or also sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Mary was distracted with all the preparations and... I'm sorry, Martha was distracted with all the preparations and she had to, that she had to make, and she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her then to help me. See, this is an illustration of the problem that the Jews had. They were worried and troubled about the wrong stuff. They were more concerned about the religious situation than they were with the relational situation that Christ offered. And so Jesus, we know this, this house from latter passages is Bethany. Bethany is on the other side of that Mount of Olives picture that I showed you. And Mary and Martha live there with their brother Lazarus. We'll find he's very important in a, in a few months. But it's interesting, it was Martha's home. What's Martha like? She's the homemaker. She was known for her pot roast. It's funny, it's called Mary's Village. It was Martha's home. You getting this? And I think Martha wasn't doing anything wrong. In fact, the verse in verse 40 says she was distracted with her preparations. The word preparations is the Greek word deaconing. She was being a deacon. A deacon is a person who waits on tables. It's a good thing. She was serving. But 
she was serving a full-fledged meal when a sandwich would have been just fine. Are you like that? See, that's me. I'm the guy that when my house is burning down, I'm going to run in and turn out the lights. And that's Martha. And then she blames Mary because the roast is burned. Lord, don't you care that my sister made this happen? Tell her then to help me. I love families. But the Lord answered her, answered her, Martha, Martha. And right now, she should just duck. Because when he says your name twice, remember he said, Simon, Simon. He's going to say that again. When he says your name twice, it's like he's got a double-barreled shotgun and he's clicking them both back. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about the new ASV says so many things. But one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken away from her. And what was Mary doing? She was doing two things. She was seated at the Lord's feet and she was receiving his words. That's the most important thing we can do. So make sure in your busyness of your schedule that you get to do that. I think Mary was amazing because in John 12 and verse 7 we'll see she is the only person that understands that Jesus is about to die. How'd she know? Because she took time regularly to sit at the Lord's feet and listen to his words. And so I would challenge myself and I would challenge you this week. Are you going to be Mary or are you going to be Martha? Are you going to do the important thing or are you going to do the distracting thing? Not that the other stuff's not important, but I think that sometimes we want to get all caught up in, in preparing a full course meal when a peanut butter and jelly sandwich will do the trick and it'll give me time to do the important stuff. Don't get worried and bothered about so many things. One thing's important, our walk with Christ. Thank you, Father, for these sisters. I look forward to sitting down with them in heaven if Martha has the time and asking if she really did burn the roast. And I know we'll recognize Mary because of her godliness and her willingness to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his words. And I pray that people would be able to recognize us as men and women who regularly sit at your feet and take in your words for us. We thank you for this great night and for this great family we commit our week to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.